Okay. Hello and welcome to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview Podcast. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today I'm joined, we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor of Medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Professor Roy Fleischman, who's a master of the College of Rheumatology in America. So Roy, welcome. And thank you so much for giving up some of your precious time. Well, thank you. So today we'd like to discuss uh, a paper recently published in ARD, which is a post-hoc analysis from the Select Compare trial. And this focuses on those patients in the upadacitinib and adalimumab arms who had insufficient response. And it looks at switching between the JAK and the TNF. So Roy, before we get started, just a bit of background. How is UPA doing in the US market share and uptake and a, a bit of a feel for what the Jacks are doing in the US given the recent decision about Philgo? And I'd love to hear your comments about that decision. So Philgo doesn't count, right? right. So what's happened was that when Fogadinib was, I'm sorry, when Upadacitinib was approved, its uptake was actually quite good. It was very good, actually, uh, both with new starts and also with switching from TNFs. Uh, we've had a situation in the United States, I don't know if you've had it in Australia, the rest of the world, it's called COVID. <laughs> and with COVID, we've had uh, certainly a great effect on medical practice. Uh, the biggest effect, of course, is that patients are somewhat reluctant to come in. They're, they're, they're afraid to leave home. And then when you are going to treat a patient, how do you do it? If you do it with telemedicine, no matter what people tell you, telemedicine is inferior because you can't see a patient, you can't examine a patient. And therefore you're less reluctant to change medication. And if you do change medication, what do you change it to? And what's happened in the United States is that physicians are going back to their old reliables, TNFs. So actually the use of Intenercept and Adalimab have increased and the use of Tofacitinib and Upadacitinib have become flat, right? I expect this will change once the, the, the pandemic is over. One of the reasons for this, of course, is that Jack and Hippies do require some lab monitoring. And rheumatologists, for some reason, feel that TNFs don't, even <laughs> if patients are on methotrexate, which I think is inappropriate. But as you know, about 30% of patients on TNFs are not on methotrexate. And in those patients, it probably is you don't need as much lab, laboratory monitoring as you do. So Fair it's enough. been a very interesting situation. Just one more little aside. Is the biosimilars arriving to, so that your insurance companies are telling you you must go TNF and you must go biosimilar before you can consider it, Jack? So that's two questions, actually. They're arriving. They're arriving almost monthly. Approval of the FDA. And the use yeah. is still very limited. And there are health systems which do buy drug 
and they do go to the biosimilar. And if you want to use adalimumab, you can use adalimumab, but not numeric. Okay. If you keep it to them. But the biosimilars are still not utilized to a great extent as they are mm -hmm. in Australia or as they are in Europe. And the reason for that is if you have single payer systems, right, where systems are able to negotiate for, for drugs, and uh, that's not true in the United States, unless there is a single payer system, which is a, a, a healthcare system that buys drugs, dispenses drugs, owns the doctor. Okay, because the one thing that's happened here is that the originator has simply matched the price of the biosimilar, taking away the advantage of the biosimilar. Yeah, I'm aware of that. I, uh, from uh, Marwan Bakari, who we know, uh, Marwan says that adalimumab in the UK is now something like that thousand fifteen hundred dollars a year. Mm. Uh, that's probably a week's worth in the United States. <laughs> well, now what we need is the reimbursers and the regulators to relax the access to what's evidence based, so we can actually treat more people. So let's talk about your study. Okay. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the background to the study and what you tried to achieve? So Select Compare was a very, very interesting study. It was a head-to-head -head study. Firstly, in patacinitib, both 15 and 30 milligrams. Uh, I'm sorry, just 15 milligrams, not 30 milligrams, just 15 milligrams versus placebo. And the primary endpoint was the ACR20 a week 12 for the FDA and the DOS-28 CRP less than 2.6 for the EMA. That was the primary endpoint. Right. But there was a multiplicity controlled endpoint, secondary endpoint of a head-to-head -head of upatacinib 15 milligrams plus methotrexate versus adalimumab plus methotrexate. And of course this was Humira because this was Abby, so it was the bio-original. And patients were treated for six months. During the study, uh, starting at week 14, I think it was week 14, 18, 22, if a patient did not have a reduction of tender and swollen joints of at least 20%, so both had to be reduced at least 20%, then the patient was switched to the other drug. Upatacitinib went to adalimumab, adalimumab went to upatacitinib. Placebo went to upatacitinib. And very, very interestingly, at month six, if patients, even though if they've had an improvement of greater than 20%, if they were not in CDI low disease activity, CDI less than or equal to 10, they were switched to the alternative drug. So this is a treat the target. So patient starts off when I'm going to be very close with my numbers, actually, I don't have the study in front of me. If the CDI started off at 45, and dropped to 15, a 66% reduction in six months, but they, but they were still not low disease activity, they were switched. And it was an immediate switch, immediate switch. Upatacinib went right to uh, uh, adalimumab, and the patients who are in adalimumab waited two weeks, the dose and cycle of adalimumab went to upatacinib. Can and you, then can you give a us a feel for what kind of percentage of patients out of the trial went into the switch and went in and didn't reach their CDI? Are we talking 20, 30%? Well, it was something like about, well, it was about 50% of patients on adalimumab 
either didn't hit the 20% or didn't hit the CDI. And it was about 40% of the patients on upadacitinib. Okay, so that's a feel for the numbers. Perfect, yeah. okay. And it's quite a unique study design. I can't recall many other studies that did similar kinds of things. There are, there is no study design like this. So this is the first study. We've seen studies of patients with TNF failure or incomplete responder, adenine incomplete responder, switching to a jack. We've seen that with all of them. We haven't seen a clinical trial of a patient not fully responding to a jack switching to a TNF. Sure. This is the first one. It's a very unique study, which is why it got into ARD. And no washout, which is interesting. So tell no us what happened as far as efficacy and safety and flares are concerned. Okay, so let's talk about flares first. So we looked at flares uh, in terms of an increase in the DOS-28 CRP of 0.6 or 0.12. 0.6, it was about 10%, a little bit less than 10%. Greater than 1.2 was less than 5%. It was really 2%, 3%. So very few patients actually flared on the switch. What happened to the switch, all right? It turned out that most patients actually responded to the switch. So the patients who did not respond to upadacitinib did respond to adalimumab and vice versa. And very interesting, because this is the treat to target, Right. If I ask you, you have a patient who's 66% uh, uh, better with a drug, are you going to switch? Knowing Peter, Peter's not going to switch, <laughs> even if there's still a moderate disease activity. More than 50% who switched to upadacitinib uh, achieved low disease activity, and about uh, uh, half of those, right? so we're talking about 25%, actually got to see that remission. Yeah, that's nice. And the numbers uh, for, for, for uh, adalimumab were a little bit lower, right? But showed the same trend. And not powered to, to analyze the difference statistically. It was not powered to analyze the difference statistically. And although it looks like in the study, you did better than adalimumab at this part of the study, you can't make that determination. Okay. Too few patients. And you can't say, is that patients will, will, can, who don't respond to the first have a good chance of responding to the second. Excellent. And those small numbers who flared, were they able to be recaptured if they either went back or did something else? We didn't do that. Okay. But that'll be interesting to know eventually. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about any safety penalty, particularly infection going from one to the other. I don't have much to tell you. <laughs> there wasn't much difference. There wasn't so much difference at all. As a matter of fact, it looks like in this group, they were very, very similar. And we looked at it in two ways because this is six months. So you looked at it over the first um, three months after the switch, was there an immediate change that you can see? And then we looked at it for the second uh, three months to see whether there was a long-term long difference. There was no difference in either of those groups. Okay, that's nice. So it looks like the zosters were fairly balanced across. It looks like even the VTE was balanced across. Well, in this study, I... in this study, yeah, 
So you have to be very careful when you're looking at it because it looks as though there were more VTEs with adalimumab than there were eupatidoslimumab. In the study itself, there was one on placebo, two on eupatidoslimumab, and three on adalimumab. So the incident rate was actually much higher for adalimumab. That's not what we take away. What we take away from this is that patients develop VTEs whether they're on methotrexate, whether they're on eupatacinib or adalimumab. Fair enough. The other interesting thing, I've just got the, um, the, the adverse event table up. Those patients that switched UPA to ADA, they had seven cases of TB compared to less than half of that going the other way. So it's interesting that the TNFs still have that little bit of whatever the TNF baggage is and the JACs have whatever the JAK baggage is. Yeah, and that's, that's correct. So this is a multinational study yes. that in areas where TB is endemic. Yes. Uh, in the beginning of the study, everybody was checked for active TB or for latent TB. Um, if they were, had latent TB, they were treated. None of those patients developed TB. Yes. So these were new cases. But of yes. course, there is that concern with TNFs. I mean, that's why you, 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 you check that yearly. Yes. So for the practicing clinician, what would you take away as a take-home message from this particular study? And are you going to look at any other issues moving forward? So let me ask the first one. The first one's easy, all right? Take-home messages and select compare if you have a methotrexate incomplete responder, what we saw in compare itself in the primary study with the multiplicity-controlled endpoint, you pad a of was superior to adalimumab in achieving clinical and functional responses. Radiographic changes were very similar. So if you have a methotrexate incomplete responder, you, chances are the patient will respond to eupatacinative more so than adalimumab. The difference isn't that great, right? It might be out of 100 patients, there might be five patients, but you can use this after, you can use eupatacinib after methotrexate. The second that you can take home is, is that if a patient fails, fails, either one, you can switch to the other, all right? So that's, that's very reassuring. So if you decide you want to use a JAK first rather than a TNF, you're, if you're in that small group, of which I am actually, uh, but the patient fails, I can switch to a TNF, uh, you know, my old standby. And the third, which I think is most important, is this actually proves treat your target. That if a patient improves, and even if they improve significantly, but they still have active disease, and this is moderate disease activity, and and not high moderate disease activity, uh, the the mean CDI came down to about 15, right? That they can still get into low disease activity or remission. So you should follow the treat your target principle. And that is a very important uh, message to take home. Uh, any future developments in this direction? I saw an interesting paper, albeit in the PSA literature, where there was a gender difference for baseline disease activity and response to therapy. I don't think we've ever looked in the RA world to see if there's a big gender difference and whether we've we should even... We've never looked, and that was actually just one trial, right? Sure. That was one trial. So they haven't looked in other trials. But this is a gender difference where males do better than females, yes. right? In this PSA trial, 
I forget which one it was, but it was a, it was a second kinematic. Yeah, it was a, a second kinematic. That's correct. So we haven't looked in other trials, right? I mean, certainly haven't looked in RA. But that does raise an interesting point because now when you when, when you allocate patients in trials, you probably better allocate 50-50. Stratify gender, what? maybe. By, by, gender, yeah. by gender. And in psoriatic arthritis, that's not that inappropriate because it is pretty close to 50-50. Mm -hmm. But in rheumatoid arthritis, it's 80-20, sure. right? So we may find that there are drugs that are actually are effective in males that are not <laughs> effective in females if we go back and analyze trials. Interesting. A very interesting thought. Interesting. All right. I know that they've done, they showed at ULAR a TOFA clinical trial gender difference. So that's a whole new world we can talk about. As far as select compare, apart from safety studies going forward, anything else on the drawing board in the select compare database? Nothing much else that uh, they can no, wean out of? No, we're taking a look at long-term data, as you know very well. I think you were the first author on that abstract, actually. <laughs> Um, we're taking a look at long-term long uh, continued safety, continued efficacy. I think really in the Jack world now, persistence becomes uh, something that we have to test and then Jack-to-Jack -jack efficacy, we have to test at some stage. Exact switching. Yeah. Patient doesn't respond to one, will they respond to the other? As you know, uh, yes. there was a small study out of uh, Spain that was reported at ACR and then again at ULAR, uh, ULAR yeah. and then at ACR, where it's 50-50 patients who didn't respond to tofacitinib responded to baricitinib and baricitinib to tofacitinib. Of course, you have four milligrams baricitinib, we don't. So I don't know if that would occur in the US, but switching between upadacitinib and tofacitinib might make sense. And you, of now, course, would be forgotten it, which we won't. We won't be able to not, even, not now, but do you think they should have accepted the 100? The 100 is not that ineffective. So the problem with the, with the complete response letter and Gilead's discussion with them, and I know no more than you do, and you may know more than I do, no. is that what the FDA does, if there is a low dose that is effective, they will approve the low dose. They may have approved the 100 milligram. The problem with the program was, the Gilead program was, uh, they had no monotherapy. It was all in combination with methotrexate. So it would have been approved, in my mind, 100 milligrams plus methotrexate. And they didn't want to do that, eh? I mean, they, they didn't want, that's worse than baricitinib. Baricitinib <laughs> has monotherapy, right? After TNF. So this would be 100 milligrams plus methotrexate after TNF. And I think there was a business decision not to do that. But, but interestingly, although they had positive you know, early results in, in ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, they've killed those programs as well. Mm, it's a big shame because I think we've discussed before, safety looked quite interesting and a little different. Yeah. So we thank you so much for your time, Professor Fleischman. This has been the CSF Author Interview Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thank you so much, Roy. We appreciate your time.
You're welcome.